Few people these days talk about sin and divine judgment and the need for repentance. It's because it's not very fashionable to talk about sin. And it's also considered to be inappropriate to do so because calling something sinful means that you have to say that some things are morally and ethically right and some things are wrong. And in a culture that we live in where people seemingly depend more on what they feel is right than upon any kind of objective or absolute truth, when you start talking about sin and repentance and judgment, people get offended. And so if you're offended by talking about sin and judgment and repentance, you're not going to like today's passage at all. Because today we're going to talk about a passage picking up where John or where, where Kyle left off in this wonderful series he's doing, The Upside Down Kingdom, coming out of the Gospel of Luke that he's going to spend several weeks, maybe months in. This passage in chapter 3 is where John says to the people, you are sinners and your sin has separated you from God. And unless you repent, you will experience the fiery judgment of God Almighty. And so we jump in at chapter 3, verse 1. Luke, who's the author of this gospel and also the author of the book of Acts, is not only a physician, but he is a masterful historian. And so in the opening verses, he nails down the events that are happening when John comes on the scene. So let's read from chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother, Philip, who was the tetrarch of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, the importance of Luke mentioning all these important and powerful people in this text is to let us know that when John came on the scene to announce that the Messiah was coming, he was announcing it at a time when the world was a dark and dangerous and corrupt and difficult place. Tiberius, the Roman emperor, was known for his cruelty and for uh, his sadistic behavior, especially toward anybody that opposed his rule. Roman authorities, like Pontius Pilate, ruled with an iron fist, and even the Jewish religious leaders were spiritually corrupt all the way to the core. And even though John the Baptist appears on the pages of the New Testament, John is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John spoke like a prophet. Under direct inspiration of God, he announced that he had come to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And so he goes back to Isaiah chapter 40, and this is what we read beginning in verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, 
the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. So John goes back to Isaiah chapter 40, and he interprets that passage to say, the Messiah that you've been waiting on now for generations is about to come. He'll be here soon. And you'd better get your hearts and you better get your lives ready for him because he will be here quickly. John came preaching repentance, calling people to repent. And his preaching was much like a farmer's disking plow. He just turned people inside out and upside down with his preaching because he told them, you're sinners and you need to repent. John did not mince words. He was bold. He was confrontational. Had he gone to school, his classmates would have never voted him most tactful. He just told it like he saw it. He did not mince his words. He never sugarcoated his message. He didn't fear anybody. Not even King Herod, whom he condemned for stealing his brother Philip's wife, which of course then caused Herod to throw him in jail and later to cut his head off. But that didn't matter to John because John was not going to change his message even for a brutal king like Herod. Now, why did John come preaching a baptism of repentance rather than just repentance? Because after all, the heart of John's message in these first 20 verses in chapter 3 is the message of repentance. But the word baptism here is a very important word in this text, and we must not run past it quickly. In verses 1 through 20, the word baptism is mentioned seven times, which means on average, one out of every three verses in the first 20 verses talk about baptism. So it must be important. Luke is the author not only of the Gospel of Luke, he's also the author of the book of Acts. And when you take both of those together, Luke mentions baptism 30 times in his writing. So again, it must be important. John the Baptist is called John the Baptist not only to distinguish him from John the Apostle who will come later. We've not even read about him yet in the Gospel of John. But precisely because baptism was such a vital part of John's message and John's practice. Immersing people in water in the first century was not something new to the Jews. It was not unusual. The Jews practiced all kinds of ceremonial washings for cleansing purposes and for purification purposes. So it wasn't new to them. And it really wasn't even new to Gentiles because when a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, one of the things a Gentile had to do was to submit themselves to baptism, to immersion in water. But what was new and what was different in what John was preaching is this. He demanded that his Jewish listeners repent of their sins because they needed forgiveness too. The Jews, he said, you are no less sinners in need of God's forgiveness than the Gentiles are. That's what was new. And it was a stinging message to the Jews, especially to the Jewish leaders who thought that simply being a descendant of Abraham gave them special privileges with God. The importance is that we understand the relationship between repentance 
and baptism and to know which comes first. Repentance comes before baptism. The primary thrust again of this whole section is you need to repent. But again, baptism is so important here and its importance is seen because that's how people demonstrated that they actually were repenting. That's how they showed that. Baptism was and still is an outward sign of an inward repentance. John called on people to turn away from their sin. But how was a person supposed to demonstrate that they actually were repenting? Well, they were baptized. They submitted themselves to baptism. That's why the scripture says John came preaching a baptism of repentance. So baptism is a sign that a person really intends to repent, really intends to make a change in the direction of their lives. That's why repentance comes before baptism. You see, repentance and baptism are inseparably related. Baptism is a symbolic action indicating your desire to make a change in your life. Baptism is what Paul the Apostle will say in Romans chapter 6. He will call it a death to the old man, to the old person. Where we leave our sin in that watery grave, in that metaphor that he's using. And we're raised up out of that water fresh and clean and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is repentance and it is baptism that gives us entrance into Jesus Christ where we then walk a life filled with grace and we pursue a walk with Jesus. Now, let's look more closely at what John's message actually was. In this text, there are two distinct groups of people. One of those groups is just your average, ordinary people, the, the crowd, people just like us, just average, ordinary folks, the Jews. But the second group of people were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we know that because when we go to Matthew's account of this story, Matthew identifies them as the Sadducees and Pharisees. And so John talks first in this passage to these religious leaders and he he just zones in on them, he hones in on them, and he focuses on them with laser focus and listen to the fiery words of this prophet. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I told you John wasn't going to win any awards for tactfulness. John did not say, Ladies and gentlemen, behold our esteemed religious leaders. No, he looked them straight in the face and he said, You bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming judgment? You're, you're like snakes that are caught in a grass fire and you're just scurrying every way you can to get away from the flames. See, these religious leaders, if they were touched at all by John's message, 
It was only because they were seeking surface changes, not a real change of heart. There was no true repentance. And John knew that at best they were simply hoping to appease their guilty consciences and to avoid the wrath of God as his judgment would come against them. Calling someone a snake is not exactly a compliment. The Jews considered snakes to be unclean animals, which meant that anything a snake touched was unclean and defiled. And so when John says to them, you snakes, he is saying to them, you are unclean, you religious leaders. You are defiled. And he accused them of living hypocritical and unfruitful lives. And he told them basically, you claim to be servants of God but I don't see any godly living in you. You're all talk, but you don't walk the talk. In Texas, you know what they call that? They call that all hat and no cattle. You see, you got a guy who drives a big truck and he wears nice cowboy boots and he's got this big Stetson hat and he uses all the language of a rancher, but you go to his farm and he's got no cows. You see, he's, all, he's just a poser. And in essence, what John is saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees is you're all hat and no cattle. If you don't start living what you're saying and if you don't change the direction of your lives, then you're going to meet the fiery judgment of God. Now, what exactly is repentance? Well, I'm going to say repentance is at least three things. Number one, repentance involves our intellect. In other words, it involves the way that we perceive ourselves. Repentance first means that we realize and acknowledge and confess that we are sinners and that we are desperately in need of a Savior. It is the thing that lets us know that we're not just good enough on our own, but that we are desperately in need of forgiveness and that we are personally responsible for our own sin. So that's the intellectual part, that we, we come to grips with that. See, the most difficult part of preaching, I found this to be the truth my entire preaching career, the most difficult part of preaching is not telling the story of Jesus. Telling the story of Jesus is easy. The most difficult part of preaching is to convince people that just being good by the world standards is good enough. The most difficult part of preaching is convincing people that they are sinners and that their sin has separated them from God and that they need a Savior and that if they don't repent of their sins and come to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that they're going to be lost. That's the hard part, is to get people to really buy into that. And so the first part of repentance is to acknowledge intellectually, yes, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. Until a person sees himself or herself as a lost sinner, they will never come to Jesus seeking forgiveness. Repentance also involves, secondly, our emotions. Usually when a person is convicted of their sin, then there's this sense of remorse and sorrow for the sin in our lives. Now, remorse and sorrow, as important as they are for our sin, that's not enough by itself because a person can be very sorry for their sin 
but not repent. Judas was immensely sorry for betraying Jesus and was so overwhelmingly sorrowful that he ended up killing himself, but Judas never repented. The rich young ruler who would not give up his wealth in order to follow Jesus, the scriptures say, went away from Jesus very sorrowful, but he did not repent. And so sorrow and grief for our sin, as important as it is, is not enough. It requires yet a third thing. And that third thing, and most importantly, is that repentance involves our will. Genuine repentance affects the decisions and choices we make about how we live. It encompasses the idea of turning around. If we're headed this direction, that we make a 180-degree turn and head the opposite direction. That's what repentance is dealing with. Repentance does not refer to just any kind of change. Rather, it, it involves the turning from sin toward righteousness. In his book, The Grip of Grace, Max Lucado tells a story about a fellow who was planning a trip to Las Vegas, and he telephoned a preacher there, and he said, I'd like to know what time the services are Sunday. The preacher was quite impressed about that, and he said, you know, most folks coming to Las Vegas don't call about coming to a worship service. And he said, well, I'm not calling about coming to church. I'm coming for the gambling and the parties and the wild women. But if I have half as much fun as I intend to have, I'm going to need a church come Sunday morning. That's not repentance. That's not repentance at all. Repentance is the determination to abandon stubborn disobedience and to surrender our will to Jesus, just like the song we sang, I surrender all. That's part of what repentance is. Here's the acid test that indicates whether we have genuinely repented or not. True repentance leads to a different way of life. It leads to a different way of thinking. True repentance leads to a different way of relating to God and to relating to other people. The Bible uses this metaphor of bearing fruit to talk about what a repentant life looks like. And that's why John says that you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance implies a change in course. The indication in this text is that John refused to baptize the Pharisees and Sadducees who had come out to him. And why? Because John knew that baptism was an indication that a person really intended to make a change. And he knew they weren't intending to make any changes. When I was a teenager at the West End Church downtown or in Nashville, I had a friend who came forward one Sunday morning at the invitation to be baptized, and all of us who were his buddies were kind of shocked and looking at one another because he had never indicated any interest at all in becoming a Christian. So after he had been baptized, we all came down and circled around him, expecting it to be a time of great celebration, but there was no joy in it because his words to us were, Maybe now my dad will get off my back about this. Now, I can't judge my friend's heart. Only God knows his heart. But his words would indicate that 
All he got that day was wet. No true repentance. No real desire to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so if that's true, then his baptism was pretty useless. And so it would have been for these scribes and Pharisees to have been baptized because they had no plans of making any change in their life. That's why John called them a brood of snakes. You see, repentance calls for a repudiation of the old life and a turning to God for salvation and a new way of living that produces godly fruit in our lives. So in verse 10, John turns his attention away from the religious leaders and he turns his attention now to just the average ordinary folks that were in the crowd. And these people had been touched by John's message. Their hearts had been pricked and so they began asking John questions. Verse 10 says, What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Please notice three things about this text that we've just read. First, notice how Luke points out the types of people who are asking these questions. These were not the high and mighty who were asking the questions. These were not the religious leaders. These were not the powerful and influential. These were just average folks. And these were the despised tax collectors. And these were the hated soldiers whose hearts had been touched, who were genuinely asking questions about what does repentance look like for me? I think about Jesus' parable. The parable that he told about the self-righteous Pharisee and the tax collector who both show up at the temple at the same time to pray. And the self-righteous Pharisee stands proudly and prays loudly to God and says, God, you know, you're so lucky to have me. I'm such a good guy. And I'm certainly not like this despised tax collector over here. But then in the story, Jesus turns to the humble tax collector who will not so much as even lift his head and beats himself on the chest and says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, it was that humble tax collector who went to his home justified that day, not the self-righteous Pharisee. I want you to notice, secondly, notice the issues that the people raised and how John translated theology into practical applications for the way they live their lives daily. See, these people raised questions about poverty and wealth about food and clothing, about human need and compassion, about possessions and contentment, about honesty and integrity in the workplace. Unlike the religious leaders who were all about maintaining their positions of power and control and keeping all their man-made traditions, these people 
had been so touched by John's message, they knew they were sinners and they knew they needed to make some changes in their lives. And so they're asking questions that met them where the rubber meets the road. In this passage, repentance looks like sharing what you have with others, even if you don't have very much yourself. It looks like doing an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. It looks like honoring others and protecting their rights. And what's amazing to me about this text is that John does not tell the tax collectors and the, and the soldiers to change their professions, which we might expect. He just simply says, do your job, but do it with integrity. Live uprightly in the job that you do. And then look what comes next in verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. People were so impressed with John and his preaching that they wondered if he might not be the Messiah. And how impressive that must have been to John, how flattering it must have been to John. And had John not been a man of such integrity, had he been a person who was ego-driven and was trying to build his own career and take advantage of the situation, when they asked that question, are you the Messiah? He could have said, no, come to think of it, I am. He could have parlayed that into great advantage for himself. But that's not who John was. Because John was a man of great integrity. John was a man who came on a mission. And he was faithful to that mission to point people not to himself but to the Messiah because John knew that even though he could immerse people in water, John himself did not have the power to forgive anybody. And John knew that he did not have the power to give anybody the Holy Spirit. And John knew that he did not have the power to build an unquenchable fire within a person. Only the Messiah could do that. And so rather than draw attention to himself, he just continued to point people to Jesus. To the Messiah. And Jesus hasn't even come on the scene yet in Luke's gospel. He's pointing people to this coming Messiah. And very soon, John would get to meet Jesus. And in coming lessons, we're going to see that Jesus approaches John for his own baptism. And then look at verse 18. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. See the words good news? Do those seem a little strange to you? That John, this, all this talk about sin, and you're a sinner, and your sin has separated you from God, and judgment is coming, doesn't sound like very good news to me. And the truth is, it's not good news. It is not good news that we're sinners. It is not good news that sin separates us from God. And it is certainly not good news that judgment is coming against God that sin. But there was, in fact, good news in what John was proclaiming. Because John was saying, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, your sin has separated you from God. Yes, you need to repent. But there is one who is coming who can forgive your sin. 
and who can reconnect you to God and can set you on a path of brand new life. That's the good news, isn't it? And so maybe this morning, maybe God has used the scriptures to convict you more deeply that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. John's message about sin and repentance and forgiveness is just as relevant today as it was 20 centuries ago. And it begins with the admission, I am a sinner. It begins with the confession, I'm a sinner, and I know my sin has separated me from God. That may be accompanied with deep emotional regret and sorrow for the sin and the pain that it's caused not only ourselves but other people. And then that's quickly followed by this, this knowledge that I need to change. I, I need to repent. I need to turn away from that. And I need to come to somebody who can help me. And that somebody is Jesus. And so we come to Jesus and we repent of our sins. And the way that we indicate that we have truly repented, just like it was in John's day, is we surrender ourselves. We submit ourselves to baptism. And it's in that baptism that God washes away our sins and cleanses us and purifies us, where he gives us the Holy Spirit and sets us on a path of new life as we begin to follow Jesus. Baptism is a one-time event. Repentance is not a one-time event. Repentance is an ongoing state of mind and heart. Repentance is something that we do every day. And the good news that John, the apostle, will proclaim many decades later is found in 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so I ask you this morning, do you need to repent? It may be a very private thing between you and God. It may be with other individuals that you're close to. But do you need to repent? And if you have not been baptized, and if you're convicted that, that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, then the way you indicate that is you're baptized. You know, this is not the old-timey invitation that we always preach for years and years. But I just felt like this morning with this particular passage, we just need an old-time invitation. We just need the opportunity to say, if I... I'm sorry for my sin, but I've never shown that regret and that desire to change my life. I want everybody to know, and I'm going to show it by being baptized into Jesus Christ, which again is where we receive our forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. That's going to give our worship team time to get back on the stage, but it also is going to give our, our shepherds and their wives and our prayer team time to sort of line these walls. I'm going to be standing right down here in the front. If you feel a need to repent, if you feel a need for prayers for anything, we want you to come either during the singing of the song or even the prayer itself. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your indescribable love for us that would lead you to send Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for your submission to the Father that you would give up your own life to save us. Lord, 
we confess to you that we sin. Even those of us who were baptized years ago, we, we continue to sin. But Father, help us to continue to repent on a daily basis. To feel the sense of genuine sorrow for the ways that we disappoint you. Because we know that our sin is a personal affront to you, our holy God. And Father, for those in this room this morning who have never declared their intention to repent by being baptized into Christ, I pray that you would touch their hearts either today or sometime in the, in the days that are in the very near future. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ and only by the grace that you extend to us that our sins are forgiven and that we are made your children. But Lord, we praise you for it and we thank you for it. In the precious, wonderful, powerful, cleansing name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.